Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We are starting a brand new sermon series today, and uh, that is called Psalm 51. It's pretty dynamic marketing. We're going to be in Psalm 51 for the next five weeks, and uh, we've done this over the years. We'll take a psalm, and we'll spend five weeks in that psalm, and so what you may uh, remember from previous times is we'll also have a daily devotional, and so every week, uh, every weekday uh, on your Facebook and your Instagram, uh, if you're connected on these uh, platforms, as the kids would say, you will see our daily devotional come out every single weekday morning. If you're not on those or don't want to be on those, you're anti those things, we'll also send an email, one email a week at 5 a.m. on Monday morning. It'll pop in your email inbox, and it'll have that week's devotionals there for you. And so we want to make sure that this is a Sunday experience that gets dragged into your week, and we want to kind of, kind of uh, drill the beauty of the Scripture into hearts here. Psalm 51 is interesting, especially because it's this... Um, beautiful poetry, and it's this worship, it's this song, it's the psalm of King David, and it actually tumbles out of maybe the worst moments of David's life. So, so King David has had a pretty tumultuous experience, he's, he's walking through a dark period, and out of that um, comes this psalm. And so we picked this psalm partially because all of us have these seasons of life that, that are really kind of destructive, we all have these periods where we go through uh, deep sin or we come out of deep darkness, and, and it isn't so much about the sin as it is about the response to the sin. Have you ever heard that, you know, character isn't about what you've done, it's how you respond to what you've done? And this is uh, David's response to his great sin, and so we're going to get into that. We'll tell the really familiar story, and then we'll jump into the psalm and see where it leads us. But this whole series is really about brokenness, the brokenness we feel, and then what we do with it. Uh, we all run somewhere, and we're going to figure out where that is. So the story goes something like this. If you're unfamiliar, uh, buckle up, because the Bible is pretty interesting sometimes. David, uh, at a time when the kings went off to war, David was, uh, he stayed back at the palace, and he begins looking out over the, the, the city of David there, and he sees a woman bathing on a rooftop. And he sees Bathsheba, and she's uh, quite fetching. And he then calls to have her brought to the palace. Now, he finds out that she's married. That doesn't really stop him. And he's king, and he's home, and he's maybe bored, and she's nice looking. And so, uh, as the story goes, he has her brought to the palace, and uh, they have relations, we shall say. She becomes pregnant, which is a bit of a problem because her husband, Uriah, is off at war. So how did she, she's, that, that's not going to be an easy one to explain, right? David recognizes this as a problem, and so David uh, calls for Uriah, the husband, to come home. Uriah comes home off the battlefield, having been summoned by the king, and David attempts to get Uriah to have his own relations with his wife, thereby uh, whitewashing his own sin. Uriah, in solidarity with the troops that are back at the front lines, Uriah says, no, 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 I can't do that. My men, my, my friends, our, our brothers are out there fighting for our freedom. I can't, I can't come home and indulge. Instead, in solidarity, I'll sleep on the palace steps. And David says, well, that didn't work. So the next night, David conspires to get Uriah drunk, hoping that will tip him over the edge to go home to be with Bathsheba. Uriah, again, a man of great integrity, says, I can't do such a thing, and he sleeps on the steps of the palace yet again. He refuses to even enter his home. So 
David sends Uriah back out to the front lines, and as the story goes, he instructs his general to uh, go and push forward and then pull back, leaving Uriah exposed, at which point Uriah will be killed by the enemy and David's problems will all be solved. I mean, this is a real, it's a real story. Imagine this is, if this was happening in, in, in modern times, because we look at the Bible and go, well, this is kind of ancient, you know, it's an old thing, and it's, it's a real true thing that happened with a real true king. You can stand in David's palace today, they've unearthed where it is, and you can look down the valley at where Bathsheba would have been standing. You see the rooftops and go, oh, okay, I see how easily this was done. And this is a real thing. If this was happening today, it'd be a 10-part Netflix series, right? You would be watching it on Dateline and telling all of your friends, you will not believe what this guy did. So David engages in what they would then call today conspiracy to commit murder, but he essentially has Uriah killed. We pick up the story there. 2 Samuel 11, uh, verse 23. The Bible says this, the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, and we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. And then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So David told the messenger, say this to Joab, his, his leader, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David still scandalous, had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David done, had done displeased the Lord. Like this is horrifying behavior where David is just doubling down on sin after sin. David is just, he, even when it all goes the way, he's like, finally, I got my, my whole thing sorted out. I got it all cleaned up. Uriah's gone. You know what? I'll just take her as my wife too. The king and affairs and murder, and secrecy. And then he has a son. So God, seeing how this is playing out, the prophet of the king's palace, Nathan, shows up to uh, help set this right. And the prophet comes and tells David this story about uh, a sheep and about a good man and a bad man. And, and he lays this whole story out. And David is incensed by the injustice of the story that Nathan tells him. This is a terrible thing. How could that be? This is a terrible man. And Nathan says, well, you're the man in this story. And he kind of spins the tail on him. And David is found out in that moment. And for the first time, David really comes face to face with his sin. 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. He finally admits, he finally confesses, he finally says, this didn't go the way I think it maybe should have gone. And then his, his confession is accepted. And he, he then is told by Nathan that the Lord in his displeasure will strike down David's son that he, he, he's not going to get to keep this son. This son is not going to be part of his future. That part of the punishment is this son will be no more. David turns faithful in these moments. David is, seems to have changed, and he begins to fast and pray, and he's weeping, and he's hoping, and seven days later, still the son is killed. It's a brutal chapter in the life of David, and this is kind of where we pick up his story. It's this chapter where you go, how would anybody come through that? The guilt and the shame from the behaviors that start the whole thing down the road and then the grief of loss along the way and, and all of the different ways that this must be flooding through David. And I think the reason I'm so drawn to this psalm is we've all been there. Maybe not in that same way. Maybe not in that same flavor. But we've all been to a place where in the dark of night we hold our shame and our guilt and it sort of just eats at us. Some of you are there right now. 
Many of us are blinded by our own sin. We're in the middle of David's Uriah problem. We're in the middle. I mean, he in the middle of his problem. He couldn't see what he couldn't see. He was just walking through it. And many of us are in the middle of our own sin right now. And then there's this cascading that happens where we try to cover it with another. Lies cover lies. I learned this most profoundly as a child from uh, Stan and Jan Berenstain. Maybe you know them, popular authors. Um, this was my favorite Berenstain Bears book growing up, The Truth. Um, so let me explain the plot. You could probably figure it out based on the cover of this incredible book. But, um, and there are bonus stickers inside if you pick this up. But Stan and Jan lay out the story of brother and sister bear playing soccer in the house. They're bored on a, a summer day and they're kicking the ball back and forth. And they, they know mama bear's real clear about this. Don't you kick that ball in the house. And they kick the ball back and forth. And eventually someone kicks it a little too hard and it ricochets off and it breaks mama's favorite lamp. Oh, mama. Breaks her favorite lamp. She comes home. She's devastated to see her favorite lamp is broken. And then what? Well, they got to start covering their tracks. So there's a lie that a bird came in. And this bird gets more and more fanciful as the story goes. And this is why it was my favorite. Because eventually, like 14 pages into the lie, the bird looks like a soccer ball. They're like, I think it maybe had white spots. And then, you know, and Papa Bear finally calls him on it. And he's like, listen, it kind of sounds like maybe you kicked a soccer ball, the one behind the chair there. And everybody's found out. And at the end of the story, what they come to is mom's not worried about the lamp. She's worried that you're lying about it. Like the, the mistake happens, it's the cover-up that hurts. You ever been in that position? Where mistakes happen, we all recognize each other, that we, we all recognize that we all fall short. We all recognize that it's hard. We all recognize that, that, that life takes turns at times that we didn't intend for. And it's never the mistake that does the most damage. It's always the lies and the cover-up. That's where the sin really gets grisly. Sin is a big word, and modern people don't like to talk about sin. It's not a word we talk about. People want to hear about grace. That's what they would tell you in in pastor school. People want to hear about grace, not sin. They want steak, but keep it quiet about the cows. Don't tell them where that came from. Let's get something straight. Universal truth is everyone fails. Everyone falls short. David's failure was spectacular, but it wasn't unique. His, his failure was no different than yours and mine. The Bible says it this way in Romans 3, 23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a beautiful universal truth that actually some people are like, well, that's kind of depressing. And I would say the opposite is true. That actually makes me feel a lot better. That I'm not special in my ability to fall short of the standard of perfection. And so my worst day I'm just batting normal like everyone else. That all of us fall short. All of us have the ability uh, to have the bad day, to take the wrong turn, to make the big mistake, to to find sin central in our lives. And, And I would say, in addition to that, as a universal truth, I would add another universal truth, which is that I think in sin, everyone runs. Everyone runs in sin. In tragedy and trauma, everyone runs. In guilt and shame, everyone runs. Everyone runs. Most of us spend a good portion of our life running, running away. It's not special. There's no extra guilt in running because most of us run from God. You can run to God, but most of us run from God. Like, like sister and brother bear, we run from the truth and we run away from coming to the truth because we just got to get out of this thing. There's too much guilt and shame. So we run. And this is not, this is not an, at all unique either. This is the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of humanity. The picture in Genesis 3 is of Adam and Eve running. Genesis 3, verse 8 and 9. 
They've bitten the fruit. They've tasted the forbidden fruit. And what happens? The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid, they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Adam and Eve in the garden with God taste the forbidden fruit and then recognize their sin. And what is their response? Run and hide. What's the picture? The picture is that in our sin and our shame, we run and hide. We always got to get away from the the sin and the shame. We got to get away from the guilt that we start to feel. So we run and hide. The God of the universe whistling through the garden as if he doesn't know, where are you guys? I think he knows. Eve's sewing fig leaves together and Adam's shushing her like, shut up, he's coming. And God's like, you want some clean fun on the internet? Anybody ever said that to you before? You want some clean fun on the internet? I'm going to give you a chance to have some clean fun on the internet. When you go home today, I just want you to Google toddlers hiding. And this is what comes up. It's the best. I think I spent about 12 hours just looking through toddlers hiding, just going, these, I want to share all of these. This whole sermon is just toddlers hiding. I like the posture of the kid at the bottom left under the hat. Like his shoulders are going, I am a coat rack. Don't look at me. The kid behind the tree is pretty special. Um, That's a Texas tree, if you ever want to know what those look like. Top left is a great one, right? The, The curtain is good. A couple people have told me they really appreciate the kid in the clear box. And I just admire how small he got. You know how proud he is? He got his little toes tucked in there. He was so happy. The box is sealed on him, and mom walks right in and finds him. This is Adam and Eve, but this is us. This is us post-sin. This is what we look like. And we don't think of it that way. We think we're clever and sophisticated people. We are these people. When we sin and we run from God, when we sin and we run away from the guilt and shame, thinking it's going to make it better, we pretend like God's going to be surprised, like God's not going to see us behind the tree under the curtain. David goes sprinting through justifications, right? David is this. This is what David does in his sin. How do I fix this? And he just layers on one after another. Every Dateline episode goes that way, right? The dentist was messing up his taxes on purpose. He's fudging his taxes at the office, and then later it's like double homicide because he started with a tax thing. Like, how did this... And you always get to the end of it. You go, it would have been a lot easier just to do your taxes. But these things tend to cascade on us. One misdeed leads to another. So where do you run in times of trouble? The real question for us today as we, as we kind of wrestle with this, where do you run in times of trouble? When things get hard, when things get difficult, especially when the difficulty stems from your um, misbehavior, we'll say, from your sin, where do you run? After a tough day, do you go home for a drink or three? Like, we're a church that's not afraid of someone having a drink. But an unhealthy escape starts to look like something, doesn't it? You start to know the difference between a normal daily pattern and an unhealthy escape. Maybe you go shopping or you play poker. Maybe you hit social media, you hit the buffet. I don't know. There's all the different ways we go in. These are just little escapes. They're just little ways to run from the thing that's staring us in the face. The real question isn't what flavor your sin takes or the sin after your sin takes. It isn't what flavor of running you're doing. The real question is what are you running from? Because each of us can look at our lives and we find these places where we go, you know what, that's 
That's a little bit of an escape for me sometimes. I recognize this often. I tell anybody who'll ask, if I, I'll often have a, uh, I'm a podcast listener, I'm a learner, I need to learn things. If you look at my phone and there's 19 podcasts lined up and I'm subscribed to 16 new ones this week, and no one here would say podcasts are evil and sinful, I would say they're escape for me. They're a, I'm running from something. And until that thing gets narrowed down and there's one or two a week that are coming through, until I get to that place, I can very clearly, I can diagnose myself and go, this many podcasts means I'm running from something. I don't know what it is, but I got to find out now because this is, this is something. I, I don't need this much information. No one does. And you, no one would say, no one else could look at me and look at my phone and go, you sure do like a lot of stuff about weird history and science. What are you into? They'd go, well, he's so curious. And I'm going, sinful. I'm sinful. And I'm running from something. And I don't want to deal with it. And I don't want to have to face God about it. And so I just keep piling on information and distraction to keep me from dealing with the thing right in front of me. It's, it's not about the fourth glass of wine. It's about what are you running from? We're playing hide and seek with God. We're children with our head in the curtains wondering if he can see us. And he can see us the whole time. Our failings are still plain to see. And so you look at the opening of Psalm 51 with me. And David's eventual response to his attempts to justify and cover up sound like this. David says, have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David starts this psalm to the Lord, this prayer to the Lord. He starts it with a, a plea for mercy. He says, wash away my iniquity. Iniquity is a word that means like bent. If you're, if you're designed to be straight, if God designs you to be coming out straight into the world, iniquity means you come out with a brokenness to you, that sin creates a brokenness in our lives. And so what he's saying is cleanse me from my iniquity. He's saying straighten me back out. Fix that brokenness that's in me. Make me right again. And he says, sin is always before me. And this is important. Sin is always before me. Your past sins, you can't outrun them. And your future sins, for a lot of those, because we are still people of flesh, you can't avoid them all. Sin is always before me. You can't outrun it. You can't hide from it. And it's chiefly, he says, David says, it's chiefly against you, God, which is a little offensive at the first blush where you go, he's just, he's just committed adultery with this woman and he's killed a man. And David is, is saying that his sin is chiefly against the God of heaven and not them. What does that mean? It means all sin is ultimately a violation of God, his decrees, and his design. No matter where we are and who we're sinning against, all sin is a violation of God's decrees and his design. So if Genesis 1 says we were made in God's image, to defile that image, to defile that design is to basically tell God, I don't trust you. I know you made me for X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to try out A, B, and C and see how it works for me, which all that is is a lack of trust. It's flesh breaking from its holy design. It's a sin against the designer. And we're going to talk a lot about this trust uh, issue on the 1st of October. So week three of the series, we're going to get deep into this, this idea of, of all sins being against God. But if you think about it, it's a lack of trust in how we were made what we were made for and what God has commanded. If your child, if you have a child who disobeys you, that, that's about a lack of trust. 
what, what's most frustrating for a parent whose child disobeys is not that the child made a bad choice, it's that the child didn't trust that you knew the right choice and chose their own way. Why don't you trust me is what we would say to our kids. Why won't you trust me? I've done this before. I've walked that path. I've been there before. We've lived that life before. I know. Why would you? Well, I just thought this way would be better. And you go, oh, why wouldn't you trust me? It's a violation of the design of life. And then there's that cascade of other damage we leave as others get involved in the wounds that we create. And so David is left to do what? He just pleads for mercy. That's all he's got left. Mercy is all you, mercy is, is not something you bargain for, right? Have you ever asked for mercy in anything? Mercy is not something you bargain for. Mercy is something you do when you, you plead for that when you have no other options. You have no leverage left. I got nothing here. All I can ask, I just throw myself on the mercy of the court. Just mercy. If I could have mercy. Mercy is not something I come to you with leverage. It's not something I trade for. Mercy is, is this unearned release. And David's left with nothing else. So much of the stress that we find ourselves in in life, so much of the drama and the trouble that we roll through is self-created. It's self-created not just in the original sin. It's self-created in the running from God after our guilt and shame sets in. It's, it's created in these moments where we're not honest with what's going on within us. And we're not taking it back to our creator, but instead we're doubling down on our own ideas. And there's this whisper I, I hear of God going, why don't you trust me? I told you that wasn't going to work. My word is really clear. That's not the precept I'm asking you to follow. That's not the command I gave you. That's not how Jesus lived. That, why would you go that way? Why don't you trust me? And then if you're anything like me, you just keep running further to try to outrun that whisper. David's already done that. And so in the Psalm, it's clear he's made a different choice. There's a different way to run. Having run from God, it's clear he's now running back towards God. And this starts with confession. I was raised Catholic. I don't know who else was uh, ever experienced Catholicism. I was raised Catholic and we had to go to confession. It was part of the like ritual of being a Catholic is you go into this little booth and, and there's uh, like a wooden chair, at least mine was a wooden chair, and on the other side of a, a wooden wall with a little screen in it, there's a little screen with a, I don't know, ornate, it's beautiful, and, and this little window would open, and there was still a screen, you couldn't quite tell who's over there, but the priest sat on the other side of a wall, and you'd sit down, and he would say, you know, basically confess your sins, my son, and you'd sit and face forward and try to name some things that you think weren't that offensive, and then he would say some other words, and he would absolve you of your sins and send you out to say some prayers. But it was always the same thing. I was mean to my sister, and I would never tell him the big stuff, ever. Because I know he can see me. He's like, you know, the screen is supposed to be a little, and he could see me. And I don't know who he's going to tell, and so we're just not going to go there. And yet, as much as I resented having to go into the little booth every so often, I did feel a little lighter when I walked out. There's something to confession. There's been a few times where people come into my office and say, I just need to confess something to you. And I get a little weirded out. I'm like, well, I'm not a priest. So that's not how that works. But there's this beauty of the release when someone comes into my office and says, I just need to, I need to tell somebody this is what's been weighing me down. This is what's on my heart. This is what I've been into. And I got to release it. And that's fair. Because I, I received that for someone and then they release from there and they walk out looking a lot lighter. They walk out looking as if something has changed in them and nothing has changed. They did what they did, but they've confessed it to somebody. Confession is the beginning of something beautiful happening in someone. Confession is the first word. When you walk into sin, the Bible would say you have to repent. There's a way to turn 
from what's happening. Repentance just means turning. But repentance can't happen until confession has happened first. You can't turn from a sin you won't admit is there, so we confess. We broke the lamp, mama. That's the confession. We say, I let you down, Lord. Augustine says it this way. He says, the confession of evil works is the beginning, the first beginning of good works. This is beautiful truth. The confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. You're not going to get to the right side of the road until you confess that you've been on the wrong side. You can't start down the good path until you recognize that you're on the wrong path and then you turn from it. Pope John Paul II said this way. He said, confession is an act of honesty and courage, an act of of entrusting ourselves beyond sin to the mercy of a loving and forgiving God. The confession is actually the most honest thing you can do and it's the most courageous thing you can do. It's to open yourselves up to what the truth really is. Because when we confess and then run to God, we encounter something radical. Because we would all agree, if we talked about it long enough, that sin deserves punishment. That's a, modern people don't like the idea of sin. That's not a word we like to talk about. But everything that has a cost has to eventually be paid the Bible says sin has a cost. David said, you were right in verdict and justified when you judge. David even acknowledged this in his psalm. He says, look, you're right in the way you saw me and you're justified in how you're judging me. You got to punish it. Every sin has a cost. We would explain it this way frequently. Parking lot's pretty full today. It's a fun day around here, fam jam day. You get excited. You have some free lemonade. I didn't have the coupon ready. You get your free lemonade and you're excited and you're like, I'm ready. And you're all hopped up on the sugar and you start backing out in the parking lot and you crunch into my car. Oh, all the cars I had. Why did I have to hit his car? Wouldn't be the first time. Um, what happens then? What we've had, um, there's a mistake has happened and now there's $1,200 in damage to my car. So what happens next? What if I come out and I go, because I'm such a nice person. I say, don't worry about it. No big deal. You're good to go. It's gone, right? You drive away free. But the car, unfortunately, still requires fixing. And the same $1,200 bill is still going to get delivered to somebody. The difference is in me forgiving you and me releasing you in my mercy, I take on the debt of your sin. I take on the debt of your mistake. So the $1,200, instead of being your problem for backing into my car and your lemonade-infused hyperactivity, I take it on and I'm going to bear the cost of your mistake. That's what happens in everything. That's why we have a justice system, because there is a mistake made, there's a sin, there's a, a crime, and there has to be a punishment because we have to level that out. And cosmically, that actually makes sense with the way that God has designed the world, is there must be a bringing back to right in all wrong things. And the way this works out in our lives is that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to cover our sins. So Jesus was going to bear the cost of your sin and mine on the cross. The point of the cross is that we backed into the, the, someone else's car and Jesus goes, you got this. You're good. Go away. You're free. And we go, man, that was easy. And he goes, not for me. The cross is the cost of our sin. But it's the story of our faith that we all fall short, we all sin, and there is a cost to be paid with all things. And confession is our opening of the door of grace. We run to God and he says, look, I made a way. When we run to God in our sin with our confession, when we run to God and say, I've, I've fallen short of your ways here, God's so gracious to go, I've made a plan for that. And God points back at the cross. I've made a plan for that. You're covered. 
Jesus came to take the cost to bear the punishment we had earned so we could be free, so we could find hope, so we could know grace, so we might truly know the Father, to know what it means to be in relationship with the Creator, our Designer. The Bible also says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. There's this pivot that happens when we are honest to come back to God. God says there's a penalty that has to be paid when we go the wrong way, but I've made the right way and now you can walk in it. My gift is that you have eternity in front of you. We would say in dying, Jesus destroys our death, that he takes our sin to the cross, but that's not the end of the story, that in rising, he restores our life, that the resurrection of Jesus is our path into new life but it starts with confession. It starts with recognizing where we've fallen short and then running to God in that. We gotta stop running away long enough to realize we can run to him. So maybe you're here and God has delivered you. You've been in this situation before. You go, man, that's a real familiar story for me. If you only knew what I did, if you know how the places I've been, if you know what I've come through, maybe you're here and that's you. Then this is a reminder of the beauty of the grace and mercy of God in your life. It's a reminder that when we sing, when we shout, when we praise, that we have a lot to be grateful for. That there's a beautiful freedom in being a follower of Christ and knowing that though we try our best, we're going to fall short and that he's got us covered. And it isn't just insurance policy to take care of the damage. More than that, he builds us something better, a new life to live in. And so you and I, if you've been through this, Sunday morning should be a time when I come and I'm so excited to be in God's house. I'm so excited to sing his praise because I know what he's delivered me from. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you're in the middle of that deep battle. You're having that David sort of season right now. Maybe a lot of people know about it and you're walking through it real publicly. Maybe nobody knows about it and you're privately just white knuckling it through life trying to get through one thing after another and the sin is cascading and the lies have been starting and the justifications are everywhere and you don't know who to tell or where to start. Today can be your day of freedom. You don't have to go another day running from God. It starts with a simple confession, and that doesn't mean you need to come see me. That Jesus is our high priest, and Jesus came to be our go-between. And so if in your moment today, in the quiet of your heart, during the loud worship time, if you open your hands, you open your heart, and you confess your sin to the Lord God, he is faithful to forgive you. That's the offer. Your struggles and your battles, your mistakes and your worst moments are all redeemable. And it simply requires us to begin with saying, Lord, I've fallen so far short and I'm running from you and I want to run back to you and I need you in my life. You ask the Lord to be your Lord. Not an accessory, not a religious trinket we appeal to, but the Lord of our life. Say, Jesus, I put my hope in you, I put my life in you and I trust you as my Savior. And in that moment, you've started the journey of new life. In that moment, you've decided, I'm no longer running from God. I'm no longer running away from hope. I'm no longer running deeper into darkness, but I'm willing to walk into the light. And then the rest of your life is that journey deeper into light. The rest of your life is a journey of of stumbling, but getting picked back up by the Lord. The rest of your life is a journey of hope and freedom because there's eternity on the other side. And so my hope and my prayer is that no one walks in here carrying the weight of sin and shame and then walks out still carrying it. My hope and my prayer is that every single person in this room would walk away free, that you would then allow us to walk alongside you, that we as a a people, as a church family can walk with you as we chase the Lord together, as we pursue his goodness and his grace together, because we are in this together, all having fallen short, 
and then all soaking in the beauty and the grace and the mercy of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, if I can pray the prayer that so many of us have prayed, there's always something new to confess, God. There's a pride and an impatience. Father, there's selfishness and sin. So God, today, as your people, we confess to you that we need you, that we cannot do this without you. That our lives fall short of the standard you've set, that our lives fall short not only of your commandments, but of your son and the instructions for life of his way. So Father, we would admit that we make a lot of decisions that don't lead to more life, but they lead to death. God, we run from you. We run into all sorts of things. So Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We appeal for your mercy. We ask that the the cross would apply fully to us in our lives so that we might know the freedom of your goodness and the freedom of your grace more than anything, Lord, that we might know you and the life in you. So Father, as we celebrate your grace and mercy, as we even in a moment come to the communion table to remember what you did for us, Father, find every heart in here aligned that we've all fallen short and that we need you, nothing less. Father, make everything else in this world fade away. Show it to be fading and paling in comparison to the goodness and the glory of knowing you truly. So God, we lift up our hearts to you. We lift up our lives to you. We ask you, like David, would you make us clean? Would you straighten out our brokenness? Would you give us pure hearts? Father, find us chasing after you, running to you with every ounce of our being. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.